for those who um, weren't here for that or um, some, some came in late and that's just fine. Um, we, uh, we're going to be going through a book called Reading the Bible for Life, and it's going to teach us how to read the Bible and read it in more than just kind of a Sunday school manner, more than just, you know, reading to get through it. It's like actually dive in and understand it and hopefully grow um, in our ability to understand God's word and apply it to our lives. Um, and through that, you know, may God form us and shape us to be to be his people and be who he's called us to be. Um, I know that this morning is uh, Time Change Sunday, and so uh, if, if you are like me, your alarm went off and you could have swore you just blinked. Um, and so uh, I, I understand we're kind of all in the same boat together. Um, we were pulling kids out of bed at 8.15, and normally we try to leave at 8.45. So, um, you know, hopefully we'll all get naps in this afternoon um, and, and, and not, not this morning. Um, so I want to... Uh, I know, I know, it's a stretch. I could, I could lay down on the floor here and go to sleep. So I had two cups of coffee, and I don't know that it lasted more than five minutes. Um, so let's, let's uh, return to the Lord in prayer, and then, and then we'll look at God's word together. Dear Father, I thank you for your grace and mercy to us, that you have shown us in Christ, Lord, that you have preserved a, a word, Lord, a message uh, written down for your people through the ages. Lord, that we can look at it, that we can, um, as we talked about this morning can be wielded by the Spirit to reveal to us who you are and what you've done for us and all your goodness and, um, Lord, your, your, even your severity, Lord, that, that we would not be a people who, who pick and choose um, what we believe or we would not be a, a people who pick and choose what we like or dislike from God's Word, but that we would take it and that we would deal with it, that we would wrestle with it, that we would seek you through it and we would um, come to it knowing that it is through your Word um, the power of your spirit using your word um, that we know you, that you reveal yourself to us. So I pray that we would become those kinds of people that approach your word um, in such a manner. Father, I pray that you would use it this morning to reveal yourself to us, um, that we can draw closer to you, that we can understand who we are and who you've made us and how we can relate to you. We ask all these things for your glory and our good. Amen. So as we talked about this morning in... Um, Sunday school, um, you know, God's word, there's a lot of different ways of, of going about it and of, of looking at God's word and studying God's word. And there's, a, there's a, as I've re- read through the Psalms, um, there's a phrase that doesn't happen a lot, but it kind of, I think it's four different times in the book of Psalms, and then there's other passages that kind of reference it, but just worded a little bit differently. Um, and that is, um, I lift my soul to the Lord, or to you I lift my soul. And it's kind of an interesting phrase. We don't really talk that way anymore. Um, and so I just, you know, what exactly does that mean? Like, what can we learn from that phrase about worshiping God, about um, how to draw near to him? And so I want to approach um, that phrase this morning and, and, and maybe draw some conclusions from it. Um, the word soul in the Hebrew is nefesh. Um, that's probably not how they were pronounced it, but that's how an English speaker pronounces it. Um, and it, it doesn't just mean soul. How many of you all learned or have heard that animals do not have souls? Right? Raise your hand. Yeah, I mean, I mean, all, like everyone's at least heard that probably. But you may find it interesting that the word soul is used three times, nefesh is used three times in Genesis chapter 1. What happens in Genesis chapter 1? God creates, 
And all three times it's used in Genesis chapter 1, it's not used of human beings. It's not used of human beings. So in Genesis chapter 1, verse 20, and God says, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. That is, living souls. And let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves. That's nefesh. In verse 24, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. That again is nefesh, living souls. And so it's interesting that three times it's used in Genesis chapter 1. And God then creates man on the sixth day, and it's not used of man. Now, I find that strange. Because then when you go to, to chapter 2, so there's two accounts of creation. One, the first account, Genesis chapter 1, is kind of the full creation and the, and the, the seven days that you see. And then in chapter 2, it kind of zooms in on God's creation of humanity, of Adam and Eve. And there in chapter 2, it does use the word nefesh. And so as we look at that, some people will say, well, maybe that's you know, two different authors kind of talking about the, the, the creation. And that very well may be true. It doesn't really bother me too much if that's the case, because um, I believe that God can inspire more than one person. Hence, there's 66 books in the Bible, and there are a plethora of authors from kings to shepherds. Um, and so... When I look at Genesis chapter 2, verse verse 5, we're going to read God creating man and in a unique way giving him nefesh, giving him a soul, making him a soul. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had had not caused it to rain in the land. And when there was no man toward the ground and a mist was coming up from the land, Uh, and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. He became a living nefesh, a living soul. Now it's interesting because I like to, to break things down and I like things to be really nice and neat. And when you study foreign languages, and specifically ancient languages, very rarely does diving into the language actually bring clarity. We like to think it will, because it sounds really good when you're reading like a Bible study or there's a preacher and he you know, gives you the, the Greek word or the Hebrew word and everything all makes sense, but what he's doing is interpreting the word. Okay, So, for instance, I used to think that soul just could be kind of life, right? I mean, the animals have soul. They're um, living nefesh, living souls, and so is the human being. And so it just means life. But guess what? There are other Hebrew words used for life. So that doesn't work. For instance, if you were to just make nefesh into life, verse 7 of chapter uh, chapter 2 would read this way. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of of life, that is Hayim, and the man became a living life. <laughs> See, it doesn't work. 
So then I've also heard, well, well, nefesh can mean breath. Well, if you make it breath, then that even gets more messy. I'm not going to bother to read it to you again, because I'll probably not do it right. But there are multiple words in the Hebrew for breath. There's multiple words in the Hebrew for life. There's multiple words in the Hebrew for, um, for spirit. So how can we begin to understand this? Well, first, we don't just have one or two chapters of the Bible. We have the whole Bible. And so we can see how God has revealed ideas and how words are used in different ways. So, for instance, the word hayim, which here is used for living, do you know how many different words are used to translate that word in our English Bible? 119. 119 words are used to translate the word hayim, the Hebrew word hayim. That's a lot. So, whenever someone presents to you a, here's the word and here's how it works, they are doing a lot of trimming. (laughs) All right, and that's one of the reasons why I don't always bring bring that into the table because I heard a my, my Greek professor said that you can know enough Greek to be dangerous. I mean, you can think you know the language, but really you just cause confusion. I like to think I may be a step up from that, that I know it's dangerous, so I don't just don't use it. <laughs> but the truth of the matter is that it it is very beneficial to understand the languages that the Bible is written in. But it's also true that people who think they know and they don't know can cause a lot of harm. There are many, many different words, the English words that translate almost every every word you find in the Hebrew and the Greek Testaments. Now, why is that? Well, we in our Western thinking, we like to think in boxes. We think in categories. And we think that the categories are nice and they're neat. And so a word can go into this box and then you can find all the words in foreign languages and they all mean the same thing. Well, that's not the case. You see, our language shapes the way we think. Right? How many of you think in a foreign language? You don't. When you think, you are thinking in your language. So how you talk and the meaning of words you have shapes how you think. And the same is true for the Jews and the Greeks. They, their language shaped the way they think and they think very, very differently from us. So I say all that, not in, not in an effort to, to muddy the waters and say it's a lot more complicated, but as we begin to study God's word together, um, and as we begin to look through a book that's going to hopefully help us, um, there is a lot, um, I think it was mentioned this morning, that um, you know when you read a Bible study, you're reading someone's opinion about the Bible. And quite honestly, anytime I speak to you, I'm giving you my opinion about the Bible. That's all, that's all we have. And that can honor God. I, I, I hold up God's word. I honor it. I seek to understand it. I believe that it's his word. I believe it's the way of salvation. And I believe that the Holy Spirit uses, uses God's word to shape and mold us. And that, that's, that's the important part. So as we go, let's just move on here. We're going to look at the word lift. We're going to look at the word soul. And we're going to look at those two kind of combined together. So the word lift is, is the shah, and I'm just going to read to you some, some passages that use it, and I think you'll kind of begin to, to understand um, its meaning. In Psalm 7, 6, it says, Arise, O Lord, in your anger. We were talking about uh, the, the, the passages of Scripture that we pull out and then put on our walls that make us feel good. This is not one of them, right? 
Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift yourself up against the fury of my enemies. Awake for me. You have appointed a judgment. There are many who say, this is uh, next, next uh, scripture, uh, Psalm 4.9. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Psalm 9.13. O you who lift me up from the gates of death. Psalm 10.12. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Psalm 28.2. Hear the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cry to you for help. When I lift up my hands toward your most holy sanctuary. Psalm 63.4. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift my hands. Psalm 68.4. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. So this word lift can be used for both physical movement and it can be used for the movement of the mind, the movement of the emotions. As I've worked in mental health for a while, I've noticed a theme among my clients and the theme is, and it's not just in them, as I see it, I see it in myself and I see it in others. And I honestly think it's, it's a way of thinking that has plagued our culture for at least the past 50 years, perhaps more. But the idea is that because I'm an animal, I have no control over my thoughts or my emotions. I am, at, I am a victim of how I feel. I am just a driftwood that is controlled to and fro by my emotions. I cannot help how I feel. And so therefore, when I feel one thing, I just, I just have to feel it. Or when I think a thing, I have no control over my thoughts. I just have to endure them. The Bible teaches us that's not at all the state of the human condition. The Bible teaches us that you are in control of your mind, your thoughts, and your feelings. That's what it means to have a soul for the human. That's what separates us from the animal kingdom. Yes, they have life. They have nefesh in the sense that they are living and moving creatures. But the soul that God has given to humanity is not just that we have a life in the same way as movement and breathing, but that our life is controlled by an inner consciousness. That you and I aren't just victims of I see, I want, I get. I need, I do, I have. We have the ability to say, I want this, but it's not good for me, so I will choose to not go down that road. I feel this, and it's going to lead me down a different road so I can change my feelings. See, your soul is both a spiritual component and the physical component. And God has given us the ability to direct our hearts and our minds in a certain direction. We are not victims of our own wants and desires. We are not victims of the emotions we feel. We are not victims of our own thoughts. We are in control. It is something called agency. You have agency over your mind and your heart in the same way You have agency over your fingers, over your legs, over what you look at, 
And that is how this word is used. I lift up my soul. Well, he just said he lifted up his hands. I lift up my hands to worship you. I lift my soul to you. I jumped the gun there and kind of passed over more more discussion on the soul. But let me just give you a couple passages. Psalm 6.3 My soul also is greatly troubled. Everyone knows what it feels like to have your body in trouble, right? I mean, we get sick all the time. We know what it feels like to be in pain. That's your body being troubled. But he says, my soul is troubled. I mean, there's an inner part of me that is not just physical, that aches. That makes no sense if all we are is material beings. Psalm 7.2 says, Lest like a lion they tear my soul apart, rendering it in pieces with none to deliver. He says, Like a lion can tear me apart physically. These people are after me, and they can attack me and rip my soul apart. I mean, they can cause damage to me that is not just physical. Your soul is more than the life that you have. Your soul is your inner person, your inner being that God has given you, your your consciousness, your psyche, your emotions, and your ability to cry out to God. In Psalm 11.5, in this passage kind of struck me, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. It says that the Lord has a soul. And as you contemplate that, it makes sense, right? Because God has created us in his image, and we know that his image is not a physical thing. God is immaterial. And so he has a soul and he has breathed into us to give us a life beyond just an animal. He's breathed into us to give us a spiritual life. And that spiritual life is that we can make a decision, that we have a will, that we can say no to one thing and yes to another, that we can feel great, passionate feelings. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Psalm 24.4. Here we're going to see these two ideas of the soul and lifting come together. Like I said, there are uh, just four passages in the the Psalms that that use that phrase. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. That's an answer to a question that the psalmist poses. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Meaning, who can approach God in his holiness? Here's the one. He who has clean clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Lifting your soul to what is false. What does that mean? Psalm 25, 1. To you, O Lord, I lift my soul. There's a movement. 
that you can perform that is greater than your hands and your feet. Psalm 86.4 Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Psalm 143.8 Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. To lift up your soul means that you are taking conscience, making a conscience, a conscious effort to move your mind and your heart in the direction of God. Just as you would lift up your hands in worship, it is an expression to God. To lift your soul to God is to place yourself before him. And I think that there is a massive application for us as a church for this. We do this every single Sunday. The time we have before I pray through the list is a time for you to lift your soul to God. To lift your soul to God means to lay yourself bare before him. You are, sub, you are subjecting yourself to his judgment. Saying, here I am, Lord. Take me as I am. You know me. Make me yours. To lift up your soul means to set yourself towards God. You are taking deliberate action to move yourself towards him. Reminds me of a passage in James. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Humble yourself and he will raise you up. To lift your soul to God is almost a humbling of yourself before him. To subject yourself before who he is, you are making deliberate action. You're taking deliberate thoughts. You are choosing to have certain feelings before him. You are taking control of your heart and your mind to be before God, laid bare. To lift your soul may also mean to wait on the Lord. It may mean, here I am, Lord, I am waiting on you. You are the only one who can deliver. Practicing patience is an act of lifting your soul to him. To lift your soul can also mean looking to God for salvation. When you are humble, when you are laid bare before the Lord, you know that only he can save. Lord, here I am before you. Unless you move, I am done. I'm I'm done for. I am ruined. I am destroyed. I am completely dependent upon your saving power to heal me, to restore me, to renew me. In a sense, to lift up your soul is a surrender to God. But lifting up your soul to the Lord can also mean a pleading with the Lord. And for that, I want to turn to Psalm 25. As I was studying this, I was like, man, there's just too much here for one message. That doesn't mean we're going to do a two-part series or anything, but uh, it means that the desire of my heart is that we would return to this uh, again sometime in the future. It may be two years, I don't know. But there is just so much goodness in this psalm. And so I'm going to, to read it for us. And you're welcome to read along, or you can just sit there and listen and just let, let, let God's word wash over you. 
To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for the Lord shall be put to shame. They shall be put to shame who are wont only treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. The, tr- the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distress. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and, what, with, what, and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. That psalm begins with, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. And I think that as we read through the psalm, he was almost giving us definitions and examples of what it looks like to do that. Everything he's doing is he's projecting himself to God. He is putting himself in a position where he's, he's there. He's asking for forgiveness. He's asking for salvation. He's confessing his feelings to God in such a way. He says, um, I'm lonely. I'm afflicted. He says, I am in distress. I'm in trouble. He says, my enemies hate me with great hatred. So it's not just that his, his very life is at stake. It's that the inner turmoil that he is experiencing, he's expressing it to God. You may think, well, that doesn't sound like taking control of his emotions and directing his thoughts to God. Well, it actually is. Because oftentimes we, as emotional creatures, as psychological creatures, we feel as if we cannot control our feelings. We feel helpless before these great passionate desires and these great all overwhelming feelings that we have at times. I can't help but think of a child. You've, you tell them no and their world is shattered. They can't think about anything else. As adults, we can experience that too. And yet, King David gives us an example of what to do during that time. I can't word it any better than a a commentator I read, so I'll just read for you what he said. 
whether consciously or not, I think David, David, the experienced warrior, knew his feelings of fear were potentially dangerous emotions. They weren't wrong since the threat he faced was real. They should not have been repressed, but expressed. What do you mean? David was right in feeling these feelings, these overwhelming sense of fear, this anxiety that he was feeling, this, this trouble that he felt in his soul because his life was on the line. People were pursuing him with great hatred, and they wanted to do him harm. And his feelings of fear and anxiety were right. God gave us feelings to feel. He didn't give us feelings to repress. They show something. But, and here's the key, those emotions were powerful and could suck the courage out of him, which would be deadly in battle. And that includes spiritual battles. You see, when we become victims of our own feelings, when we become helpless before them, then they suck the virtue out of us that God has wants us to use to accomplish his purposes. The warrior in battle who's trembling in fear and gives into that fear is going to wind up dead. And so David expresses these emotions. He doesn't repress them. He doesn't shove them down a hole and just put a lid on it and hope they don't boil up someday. He says, no, God, this is how I'm feeling. And then what does he do? David encouraged his soul by remembering and rehearsing what he believed about God and then pulled his emotions up to his beliefs. Lord, this is how I'm feeling and this is what I know to be true. Help me to feel, help my feelings to match what I know to be true about you, Lord. Give me the courage. Save me. Provide me salvation. He pulled up his emotions into his beliefs, or he placed his emotions under the governance of what he believed. You see, that is what faith is. That is an element of faith where this is how I'm feeling, this is what I know to be true. What am I going to feed? What am I going to focus on? Lifting your soul to God is saying, I'm going to put my emotions under the beliefs, under my faith. My emotions are not going to rule me. They're not going to determine who I am. My beliefs in God and who he says he is and who he says I am are going to rule the day. So we can express our emotions, but we don't live by our emotions. We put them under the truth of God and we live in the truth of God. He says, as we pray in our desperate situations, do we regularly confess what we believe about God before we launch into how it all feels? That was a big one for me. How many of my prayers are just me expressing my feelings to God and asking him to change me, asking him to change my situation? Or are we encouraging our souls in faith and placing our emotions under the governance of what we know to be true about God. See, that, that's what praying scripture looks like. Praying scripture is, Lord, this is who I know you to be, and yet this is how I feel. I trust in you. I lift my soul to you. You are my rock. You are my fortress. Over and over and over as you read the Psalms, 
the psalmist is declaring what he knows, who he knows God to be. You are full of loving kindness. He says, all your ways are steadfast love and faithfulness. See, our prayers also need to be declarations of who we know God to be in an effort to submit our feelings to who he is. Now, don't mishear me. I'm going to say this again. It does not mean repressing your feelings. It does not mean ignoring your feelings. But it does mean acknowledging them, expressing them, and choosing to rule over them. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. You have an opportunity to do that at least minimum once a week here on service. You have many opportunities to do that throughout the week if you'll pay attention to how your heart feels. If you'll pay attention to who God says he is through his word. You can't do that unless you're reading it. You can't do that unless you're studying it. It's so vital that we know his word so we know who he is because he's revealed himself in his word. I... I'm just going to give you a challenge as I close here, okay? I challenge you to read through Psalm 25 and to pick out a couple of paragraphs, maybe just one, that really sticks out to you who God is and commit it to memory. Memorize a couple of these verses. Or if you really want a big challenge, memorize the whole psalm. So that it can govern your feelings and your thoughts when they seem overwhelming. Time and time again, the psalmist will say, I am sinking deep in a pit. The waves are crashing over me or my foot about slipped. Those are all instances where he seems so overwhelmed. And yet where does he turn? He turns to trust in the Lord. He turns, who do I know God is? What has he said? What are his promises? And then choosing to live according to those things rather than giving in to your emotions or the lies that you believe. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for your grace, your mercy that you've shown through Christ and you've shown us through the preservation of your word. Father, I pray that we would commit it to memory. I pray that we would build our lives upon it, that it would be precious to us and that we would hold it in honor. Father, I ask that you would be at work within us, that we would be the kind of people that aren't ruled by our emotions or our thoughts, that we submit them to you, that we take them captive and say, this is what I know is to be true. This is how I'm going to live my life. Lord, all the while knowing that it is It is you at work within us, both to work and to will according to your good pleasure. Father, I thank you for your work. I thank you for your power. I pray that you would make it evident in our lives. I ask this because of the precious blood of Christ. Amen.